welcome back to episode four of Traffic Jam. It's Georgia here, and as always, I'm joined by the sock knitting queen, Isabel. I actually haven't done that in a while. I should pick it up again. I could use a new pair. Hey, your Christmas present. Anyway, hi, everybody. Uh, Thank you so much for coming back to this podcast. Um, If you've been listening, and if you're just finding this episode, welcome to our show. Georgia and I are trying to build an educational outreach uh, platform as part of MISCO, a nonprofit organization dedicating its efforts in the ever so real fight against human trafficking and child exploitation. Here we have research-based conversations that aim to spread awareness and open up the discussion about human trafficking. So if this is something you're interested in learning about and you enjoy our conversations, please share this with your friends and family and check out our social media pages that are linked in the episode description. We also opened an Etsy store with Traffic Jam and Moms and Security merch, where the proceeds will go towards Moms and Security Global Outreach, and it will help us further the mission to combat human trafficking. Yes, we have some really cool hoodies, um, hats, and mugs, so go check it out. And you can also let us know if there's something you want us to put on the store. Today, we're going to have a rather deep conversation about trauma bonding. But first, Isabel, I think you could talk a little bit about MISCO U and give us an update. Yes. So for those of you who don't know, uh, Moms and Security, uh, we have a chapter uh, portion of our organization um, that essentially is, that serves as the base for student organizations, and we call it MISCO U or Moms and Security Global Outreach Universities. So for any college students out there looking to get more involved on campus, to start your own club, or just get more involved in the human trafficking space, uh, we definitely would love to connect with you. Reach out to us via our social media platforms, our Instagram, our LinkedIn, and we'll connect you with some resources. You're not going to be starting alone from the very beginning in building this. We have templates to help you out. I'm just setting up the organization. We have PowerPoints that can serve as guides uh, for your, you know, weekly or biweekly meetings, however you choose to set it up and suggestions for how meetings can look. So definitely go ahead and reach out to us. We'd love to help grow uh, MISCO U. We currently uh, started it at University of Pittsburgh. Um, So also if anybody listening goes there, Uh, feel free to stop in uh, for one of their meetings um, and say hi. The great thing about MISCO U is it also provides volunteer opportunities, internship opportunities, connections and security and advocacy, and free knowledge and training about human trafficking. So look into starting a chapter on your campus, or if you go to Pitt, like Isabel said, go check it out, get involved. It's a great networking opportunity. What's really cool is we've actually had outside organizations reach out to uh, the MISCO U chapter at University of Pittsburgh for potential collaborating opportunities, which has helped allow students to do different volunteer work. Um, We've even taken on volunteers from the chapters into uh, Moms in Security. So it's just another great opportunity to help build skills that can go on your resume Um, more to talk about in job interviews in terms of things you participated in, especially if this is a field that you want to get more involved in. Please connect with us if you have any interest in this. We started the first one at the University of Pittsburgh, like we said, so we know what it's like to try to start a chapter, and we will be more than willing to help you out. I found a really interesting quote from a Florida organization called Bridging Freedom. And they said, quote, the most problematic issue with human trafficking next to the act itself is the public's unwillingness to view the victims as victims rather than willing participants. Even our government officials are just breaching the cusp of the reality that surrounds the mental abuse of a sex trafficked individual. I think there's a lot here to break down in this quote. Okay, and we're going to go slow. So this quote really focuses on how the myth that we talked about in a previous episode about the ways that 
people don't always believe people who have been trafficked because they don't fit a typical understanding of a victim. And one of the things that people have, you know, failed to recognize is the impact of something called trauma bonding. And on that same website, there was actually a quote from a domestic violence survivor that really kind of emphasized this point of really failing to understand and fully grasp the way that mental abuse and manipulation impacts victims. Uh, They said, quote, I never understood or respected the wives of abusive husbands who stayed around for the next one-sided boxing match until I was one, end quote. One of the most challenging realities to grasp about sex trafficking um, or sexual abuse um, is the manipulation involved that keeps many uh, victims in an abusive situation. And like I mentioned before, one of those uh, manipulation tools is trauma bonding. So in this segment, we are going to look a little bit more um, at manipulation and trauma bonding to better understand why women or people who are um, in uh, sexually violent situations stay with that abuser. So clearly there's going to be a lot of mental manipulation and mental abuse talked about in this section is what I'm assuming. And I don't know if this is coming up or if you're going to lead into this, but does it ever come up that victims almost don't even accept that they're victims or they don't even realize that they're a victim of this? And that may be be why trauma bonding happens. We are going to get into the stages how a trauma bond takes hold, 100%. Okay, cool. So can you define trauma bonding for us? Because I don't think everybody even knows what that means. Yeah. So in research, trauma bonding is sometimes referred to as Stockholm syndrome. Uh, The two are a lot of times they're used interchangeably. And there's technically no really medical standard diagnosis for trauma bonding. Um, And there's not just like one standard agreed upon definition. There's actually very little research on trauma bonding, and most of it is limited to the United States and focuses on uh, sex trafficking of women and girls. Um, in the last, you know, just couple of years, um, there has been a little bit more uh, global research, but overall, like more research um, is needed. But still, according to the U.S. State Department, the most common uh, meaning of trauma bonding is when a trafficker uses rewards and punishments within cycles of abuse to foster a powerful emotional connection with the victim. Uh, Traffickers may take on the role of a protector to maintain control of the victim, create confusion, and develop a connection or attachment, which may include the victim feeling a sense of loyalty to or love for the trafficker. And this connection or traumatic bond becomes especially intense when fear of the trafficker is paired with gratitude for kindness shown. Additionally, trauma bonding, including um, in cases of trafficking, may occur within familial relationships in which the perpetrator could even be a parent. Excuse me if I'm going a little out of pocket right now, but Don't a lot of people turn to the movie Beauty and the Beast as an example of Stockholm Syndrome? You know, Belle's held hostage by the Beast. And at first she absolutely resents him. He eventually starts to give acts of kindness and make her feel welcome. And then she falls in love with him and she doesn't even want to leave by the end of the movie. Yes. So I love that you brought this up. The original story of Beauty and the Beast falls more in line with Stockholm Syndrome. The Disney animation uh, adaptation of the story was altered for a more modern audience. um, And a lot of the key aspects that reflected Stockholm Syndrome were actually dropped. Uh, The movie makes it so that Belle 
has uh, a lot of independence and takes control of her life. And the two fall in love with each other. Uh, but in like the original story, Belle's feelings for the beast developed under a lot more uh, duress circumstances. Okay, that's really interesting. I didn't know that the Disney animation was so different from the original. <laughs> they changed a lot of those original, what, what, if it's, you know, fairy tales or what, because those original versions are brutal. I mean, yeah, you got to appeal to your child audience. So I guess it's a good thing that they did. So they didn't traumatize us as children, right? Yeah, more family friendly. Yeah, definitely. So the history behind the name for Stockholm Syndrome is really interesting. This term was coined in 1973 after a hostage situation during a bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden. There was a surprising bond between the hostage and their captors. And one of the victims, Kirsten, was quoted saying, I fully trust Clark and the robber. I am not desperate. They haven't done a thing to us. On the contrary, they have been very nice. But, you know, Olaf, what I am scared of is that the police will attack us and cause us to die. Olsen, Olsen, sorry if I said that wrong, is sitting in here and he is protecting us from the police. End quote. Well, Aaron Lee wrote an article in a journal of library uh, of literary criticism and described what is happening in that quote that you just read. Essentially, hostages were imprisoned for six days and uh, and bonding to their captors was a coping mechanism for survival. So Kirsten uh, was also quoted saying, if someone likes you, he won't kill you. So the captors became more sympathetic to their hostages and began treating them better as a result of this bond. Uh, Lee states that with Stockholm Syndrome, you know, the bad guys become the good guys and the rescuers become the threat. Still, six months later, though, uh, those kept hostage did testify against their captors. However, two of the women uh, who were held hostage ended up actually marrying uh, some of the captors. Now, that's a Disney story if I ever heard one. Held hostage for six days, but he ends up being a prince charming. And that trauma bonding happened so quickly. Six days and you're, you're ready to marry the man. Yeah, it can happen very quickly, or it can occur over a much longer period of time. It can look very different in different situations. Uh, and while there isn't like a set diagnostic criteria per se, there are like quote unquote like symptoms that have been pulled from these real life examples to help indicate uh, trauma bonding. Um, and there is a Stockholm syndrome scale that was um, piloted in 2013. And some of the indicators of trauma bonding include, you know, an environment where the victim is isolated and must turn to the captor for uh, nurturance and protection, uh, the inability or lack of desire to escape, or knowledge of a threat to the hostage's life and ability for the captor to carry out a threat, and uh, these small acts of kindness or showing restraint when abusing the victim. This just made me think of that book that I read, A Stolen Life by J.C. Dugar. Oh, I want to have a book chat. <laughs> book club. We're going to have a book club episode in the future so we could talk about this. Do you want to give us a brief? Can I? Yeah. Okay. So if anybody has heard the story of J.C. Dugar, it's very traumatic and sad. But what you just said, Isabel, about this trauma bonding is pretty parallel to what this girl went through. So she was captured as a child and basically held captive 
in a shed in the man's backyard. And the only time that she was fed or given water was when he would come in to visit her. She had no access to the outside world and she was chained up for the first few days. And then eventually he let the restraints go. And then, you know, he built this relationship with her. Like you said, um, she was isolated and she had to turn to him for any type of food, anything. She was unable to escape because she was initially chained up. And then when the chains were released from her, he told her, my dogs will attack you if you even try to leave. And I'm pretty sure the door was also locked. If I remember, it's been a while since I read the book. So she had that inability and lack of desire to escape. And like you said, there was a knowledge of a threat to the hostage's life and ability for the captor to carry out the threat. I do remember in the book, he did give her other threats. I don't remember them specifically, but being attacked by a dog is also a big threat in itself, especially for a small child. And then those small acts of kindness would be him bringing her a milkshake that day when he dropped off her dinner. It would be like a sweet treat to look forward to. And then then he would uh, abuse her. But she eventually ended up trauma bonding to her captor because he was what was essentially keeping her alive. Like he paired his presence. There was obviously the abuse, but also with that nurturance, like he brought her the food and water. And the only time she got food and water was when he was around. Yes, exactly. So how did she, if you remember, um, end up escaping? She didn't necessarily escape her situation. The man that had captured her and was abusing her for all of these years had broken his parole and he was going in for questioning. So he basically was a narcissist, this man. And he thought if he brought in his quote unquote family to the police station and he told his family what to say, that the cops would believe that he is a normal stand up guy and he's just back to being a normal citizen. So he brought in his wife and he brought in JC and the two kids that she had with him, if I'm remembering it correctly. And basically what happened is the investigators were able to notice that something was just really strange about the situation and they separated them all completely. And when they got JC alone, they were questioning her about what her name was, but it had been so many years and she never said her name because she just kind of lost her identity, probably as a survival slash coping mechanism for being abused for years on end. And eventually the investigator pretty much like let her know it was okay. You could tell us your name. She still didn't say it. She wrote it down on a piece of paper and the cops had recognized that name of this missing child who had been gone for years. And I was like crying when I was reading this part of the book because it was just so like, she's finally going to be saved and she's saving herself in this moment. Oh my God, it's such a good read. Everybody needs to go get this book and let us know when you have it and we'll set a date to do a book club discussion. (laughs) Yeah, I want to read it. I'll send you mine. We could just, it'll be like a a child of divorce. We'll send it back and forward. (laughs) Perfect. Okay. um, Now that that side track is over, what are some of the questions that are on the Stockholm Syndrome scale? Yeah. So just uh, kind of, you know, helping grow our understanding of uh, trauma bonding and like what it is that questions that people ask and what it is they're looking for when trying to diagnose it. Um, the scale has 49 items um, and it has people, you know, rank their response on statements like, without my partner, I have nothing to live for, or um, I cannot make decisions, or when others ask me how I feel about something, I don't know, or, you know, I both love and fear my partner. And if I give my partner enough love, he will stop getting so angry with me. So what's the difference between codependency and trauma bonding? Because they sound like they're pretty similar. That's a really good question, Um, especially with those scales. um, A lot of times people will think of codependency. Um, So trauma bonding and codependency, though, they are different, but they can also both be present at the same time. 
the MEND project, uh, they explain that a codependent believes the abusive person needs them to care for them in places the abuser's needs above their own. Codependency enables the abuser's um, unhealthy uh, power and control to continue. Whereas with a trauma bond victim, they are simply addicted to the relationship and they see the abuser's actions as love, you know, notwithstanding the harm uh, the abusive person causes. Uh, trauma bonds do not take place in every abusive situation, but once they form, they are very difficult to break. In a trauma bonded relationship, it's impossible to understand why you keep going back to the abusive person. Um, and it's impossible to imagine living without them. The confusion for the person experiencing trauma bonding uh, combined with the incredible pull uh, to the relationship makes the abused person feel as if the bond is true love, but really it's not. Uh, trauma bonded individuals uh, experience cognitive dissonance uh, where there is a significant disconnect between what is actually occurring in the relationship versus being able to see the harmful behavior with a clear sense of understanding. For whatever reason, all I could think of is that quote that's like, we accept the love we think we deserve. That's, I don't know why that's the only thing popping in my head right now. From yeah, is that what it's from? That's what I recognize it from. Okay, so like in my head, trauma bonded person sees everything what is it they're like partner is it even considered a partner it's the abuser but sometimes it is a partner they're just seeing everything as an act of love so even if they're being abused they're seeing it as an act of love so that just instantly makes me question if they have something in them that's saying like you know this is what I deserve and this is love or if there was like a relationship in their life where it was kind of similar to that and they just saw like, oh, so that's what love is. And that's the only version of love that they know. So they just accept it and they can't, they can't break it because they're like, no, no, no. It's, this is what I know is love. I don't know if that makes sense. Well, let me keep, let's keep breaking it down a little bit more. Okay. Yes. You're on, you're on a track here. So I keep pulling from the men project because they wrote, it's a really interesting article. It's titled Trauma Bonding Explained, Signs and How to Break the Bond. Um, so if you're interested in reading more, I would definitely recommend uh, starting with that article. Uh, but in the article, it discusses why trauma bonding is so strong. It, is, um, it goes back to early childhood attachment styles. Uh, so when we're born, we first form attachments with our primary caregivers. Uh, healthy attachments in the early stages of life encourages healthy relationships. Uh, when early childhood attachment is disrupted or is inconsistent, we become attracted to similar unhealthy attachments as adults. We develop a strong need to stay with anyone, even an abuser, who presents themselves as a caretaker, a comforter, or protector. The trauma bond cycle creates repetitive interruption of any positive attachment leaving the victim craving uh, and desperate to return to those positive feelings, notwithstanding the destructive patterns of maltreatment. Correct me if I'm wrong. So basically, um, a person who becomes trauma bonded, they're be able to accept any type of pain and abuse because they believe in their heart that if the next action by their partner or abuser is, positive and loving, it was worth all of that pain and abuse because that's what love is. They're longing. So in the early stages to trauma bond, there's a lot of acts of kindness. It brings somebody up to this high. And all of a sudden that goes away. And they hope that they'll get back that feeling. That And, you know, oftentimes the abuser might put like little acts of kindness in this cycle of abuse to then kind of reinforce like, oh, there is that, that positive that that person will continue to then yearn for as they move through this cycle. 
But really, um, in a trauma bond, abusive actions then end up being mischaracterized as love. This is what they think love looks like. Their obsession with the positive stages of the cycle blinds them, um, or at least makes them willing to tolerate the abuse and classify it as less important. That definitely makes sense to me. It's like, you know, every second of abuse is worth it because I know you're going to give me all of this love eventually, whether it's tomorrow or the day after that, I can wait and I can hold out because that love is going to be stronger than anything. And it is important to note, though, that a trauma bond, it's more than just an attachment style that was formed. It's actually characterized as an addiction. Um, there are a lot of these like, biological factors that come into play. Um, just to help, you know, prove my point that psychology is a science. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. I'll, I'll listen. I'll take it. I, I'll break. <laughs> well, so the Menda Project explains um, when someone is traumatized by a romantic partner, their brain releases certain chemicals, which stimulates trauma bonding and creates mental health issues. Dopamine, endogenous opioids, corticotropin uh, releasing factor, and oxytocin are released in response to intimate partner trauma. Particularly, oxytocin is highly uh, responsive to social situations and in high levels can cause emotional dysregulation anxiety and addiction as well as there's other things too um but this chemical uh response is why victims become physically addicted to the abusive relationship they crave the high that they experience from the oxytocin release during the early stages of the cycle where the kindness was shown um and as with drug addictions, victims, you know, they'll excuse, they'll hide or lie about the abuse to prevent others from confronting them about their relationship, you know, or encouraging them to leave. It's interesting to see how addictions can parallel each other, whether it's drugs, alcohol, or porn. Yes. Well, the U.S. State Department, um, they released an article on trauma bonding and quickly um, discuss the biological aspect of trauma bonding and how people might stay in abusive uh, relationship. And it's an interesting angle, so I want to bring it up. Um, but they state that um, during a single incident of trauma, the limbic system, the brain's emotion center, overactivates and the prefrontal cortex, the brain's logic center, shuts down. Repeated trauma exposure can negatively affect brain development and the way a person thinks, often resulting in a victim becoming numb and disconnected from themselves. Therefore, in order for them to feel something, it must be intense. For example, a trafficker's repeated abuse and the related trauma exposure may result in a trafficking victim returning to the trafficker due to the intensity the familiarity and routine provided by the relationship. At times, this relationship may also decrease the psychological impact of the trauma uh, as moments of love and care from the trafficker offset experiences of anxiety or fear. I never thought that abuse could actually be addicting, but the way you're breaking it down makes so much sense and it's actually really interesting. And just to see how a trafficker or abuser can basically just manipulate and alter the brain development of their, their target, their victim, they could, I don't want to say mess them up for life, but basically secure an attachment and a dependence on them because their victim is going to seek the high, seek the love, seek whatever it is that this trafficker is able to provide to their brain, basically. Right. Like actual alteration is occurring um in the brain like physically in the brain um and this kind of then leads me into the next thing i want to talk about which is the seven stages of trauma bonding that abusers use to go ahead and you know 
create this manipulation that ultimately alters the brain uh, functioning. Um, so the seven stages are love bombing, developing trust and dependency, criticism, gaslighting, uh, resigning to control, loss of self, and addiction to the cycle. All right. Um, I think we should unpack these a little bit. So starting with love bombing, I'm thinking of romantic gestures, gifts, quality time, nice dates, coffee. Right. So this stage is super important because it helps an abuser entice their victim. Uh, the victim will end up spending the rest of the relationship longing to re-experience the feelings of this phase. So this is what really starts the addiction. This is the high that they're always going to be trying to re-experience and what they're going to use to excuse the abuse. And if they're doing this a lot at the beginning of the relationship, they're basically setting themselves apart from all the other people in the victim's eyes. So from a victim's point of view, their abuser is the only one that loves them, the only person that will protect them and nurture them and take care of them. So the victim's going to let their guard down. Exactly. There is no sense of like immediate danger, no, you know, red flags. Um, The second stage is developing trust and dependence. So now that, you know, they have lavished you with gifts and romantic gestures and flattery, They'll try to make uh, you increase your dependence on them. For example, they'll ask you to move in with them um, or set a date to get married or elope uh, following through on, you know, the dreamy ideas uh, they shared during the love bombing phase. So how do they actually build trust in this stage? So they will act in ways to make you question them at first. Um, So... Then, you know, they'll make you feel, but then they'll make you feel guilty for asking questions and doubting them. Uh, This is also why, you know, again, like I said, the love bombing stage is so important because they'll keep referring back to the way that they treated the victim so well. Like, how could you doubt me when I did this for you and I did this? And they'll keep returning back to, you know, the stage where they were treating them with so much kindness. So they could basically refer like refer back to the beginning of the relationship miss like look at how great I treated you look at how much I love you like for you to question me when I've done so much for you like that's manipulation at its finest but what's so interesting too is they purposefully will engage in actions to let the victim start to they need the victim to start to question them that way they can you know so early on remove that doubt and put it back on the victim make them feel guilty for ever questioning them so they like basically plant the seed of trust because they're like let's make her question me and then i'm going to show her why she's absolutely wrong for questioning me exactly okay now the third stage is criticism here you know the honeymoon stage is over uh and no matter what you do not going to be good enough the abuser reacts to the victim's um, expression of sadness disappointment or concern by placing blame and responsibility on the victim. Uh, They may begin picking you apart, you know, demanding your qualities uh, or making you feel like your values are the problem. This shift in treatment is sudden, you know, from the love bombing stage, uh, leading the victim to believe that they are the ones who did something wrong to receive this type of treatment. Like, you know, I was treating you so well, so well, all of a sudden, you're experiencing all this criticism, the uh, person being abused is thinking, what did I do to now get this treatment? Because this person, you know, the abuser isn't a bad person. They were so nice originally. But the abuser will forgive them and convince them, you know, that their actions are meant to help and not hurt. It's for the victim's own good to make them a better person. So even when the victim questions anything, they're always going to be wrong. And the abuser is always going to be right. And then this victim just almost has like a false sense of reality in what a real relationship is, whether this is their first or last relationship of their life. Their whole perception of love is just completely 
altered and thrown out of context. So now they've associated this person and all of their actions with love and care. Right. Now, the fourth stage moving along is gaslighting. Gaslighting is a covert tactic aimed at, you know, making the victim question their own reality um, or like their perceptions of sanity. Uh, Gaslighting can include false accusations, like inventing this false narrative um, that are, you know, the victim's fault, lying, you know, just saying anything to make the victim feel that they're going crazy, uh, blame shifting are some examples. And over time, the gaslit victim believes that they are the ones who need help, not the abuser. Uh, as soon as as soon as the victim uh, demonstrates worry or concern for their own well-being, their partner plays the nurturer, possibly recommending counseling or expressing concern that the victim is not emotionally well. And this will satisfy the victim's need to believe that the abuser truly cares uh, and they mistake the abuse, um, these abusive tactics for love. And you start to question everything, but then, you know, you're blamed and guilted for that. And so you back off. This is like a mental roller coaster. Like you're on a high, then you're down a low, low, and then you're back on a high real quick down to a low and then back on a high because now they love you again. 100%. Now the fifth stage is resigning to control victim begins to completely shut down uh, with nowhere to turn to, no idea of how to address the conflict. They submit to the partner's control in order to avoid future conflicts. I can imagine in this victim in a situation like this is going to be getting really skilled with people pleasing to try and fix everything in the relationship. And they're probably just so confused. I can understand why they think they need counseling and why nothing is what it seems, but they're willing to fix it because this person loves them so much and they would do anything for them. So you owe it to your abuser to fix everything in the relationship for them because they love you. Well, and so again, according to the article in this stage, the victim actually starts to question if they're being manipulated a lot of the times. Um, But because of the confusion that they feel, it's clouding like their cognitive ability um, and they end up just resorting back to self-blame. And the sixth stage is loss of self. So the victim loses their sense of self-esteem, their sense of self, and they give up any boundaries that they um, previously had set up. And the loss of self makes it harder to form outside connections which further solidifies the isolation um, at this point. So they don't have anybody to really reach out to for help. Perhaps, you know, after many months or years or even decades have passed and the victim may uh, come to recognize uh, they are in an abusive uh, relationship, but the trauma bond is now so firmly rooted, making it extremely difficult for them to imagine leaving. And the seventh stage is addiction to the cycle. The abuser, you know, uses withholding to deprive their partner of the feeling of attachment and relationship and increases uh, their desperation for earlier phases. The victim will try, you know, everything to win back their partner's affection. The victim will accept crumbs of affection, uh, starting the cycle all over again. Their ability to return to a positive phase makes the victim believe their abuser really loves them. It reinforces their self-blame as they hope for a better future. But those hopes are repeatedly dashed, leaving the victim like longing even more for a sense of secure attachment. Remember, all of this is combined with neurotransmitters being released by the victim's brain chemistry resulting in a physical addiction to the relationship as well, like we just talked about earlier. Okay, I'm trying to digest all of that. <laughs> I know, it's, it's a lot. It is, but it's, it's good information and it's stuff that definitely needs to be talked about so we can understand and maybe even point out to people in our lives where you're going, are they, are they in a, a situation 
and we just didn't notice it until we talked about it right now or heard it on that that one podcast episode. Well, it helps build too, you know, the complexity of what victims of sexual violence experience. It can hopefully, you know, help us to not excuse people who are coming out um, as survivors or as victims of this type of trauma. And having any kind of understanding on this will also help us hopefully be able to talk to them in a more understanding way where they're going to feel comfortable coming to us and we can even just offer, you know, open arms and say, I can't understand your situation completely because I haven't lived in it, but I think I might know a little bit about like what's happening and maybe why you got here. So like, just talk about it. I'm not going to judge you. Well, in a little bit later, actually, we're going to talk about um, service providers and kind of how to adjust. So there's a little preview there. Um, But before we do that, I think another thing to touch on, especially in talking about breaking the cycle and the role of service providers, is the impact of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. So PTSD can be a symptom of trauma bonding, um, or it's like a comorbidity, and also impacts the victim's feelings on needing to stay in the relationship. So first, PTSD intensifies the need to have their wounds uh, soothed, by their abuser um, or intimate partner. It can make a decision to leave more confusing, uh, even sending the victim into panic attacks, fluctuating you know, heart palpitations or increased heart rate, nausea, etc. And second, PTSD also causes the victim to distrust others, becoming suspicious of anyone who questions the relationship or the abuser's love for the victim. Uh, any outsider who suggests the victim leave the abuser uh, adds trauma because the victim desperately believes that they need the relationship. The victim will also shut out any person who is not fully in support of the relationship, uh, which includes the victim uh, protecting the abuser's reputation and the relationship at all costs. So if you you know combine trauma bonding with PTSD, it makes it all the more intense and all the more harder uh, for service providers to provide services or for people to reach out to this individual. Yeah, I can't even imagine being a victim in this type of situation because your whole brain has just been through through the ringer. You've been up, you've been down, all around, and you think that you have this person who cares so much and would do anything for you and that you just want to do everything for them to show them that you love them and you know, you're in it with them. And then for somebody outside to not understand a relationship and to question it, it's like, who are you? How could I trust anybody that doesn't see how much this person loves me? Like you should be so happy for me that I'm in such a quote unquote loving relationship. One of the biggest things that I actually took away from researching trauma bonding was the suggestion for service providers and government officials provided by the U.S. State Department, um, the article that I referenced earlier from them. Uh, They talk about the importance of recognizing the survivors may behave in ways that seem incongruous with typical expectations of victimization. Uh, Within human trafficking, trauma bonding may cause coerced co-offending, received ambivalence, uh, delayed or inaccurate reporting, or unwillingness to cooperate with law enforcement. So I think we have a little bit of a repeating theme here where we're seeing that human trafficking and exploitation go way beyond mainstream media perceptions and what we think of as a society when we hear human trafficking or exploitation. And the recommendation goes on to say that uh, services available to survivors of human trafficking, especially those who have experienced trauma bonding, need to be responsive to the impact of the survivor's relationship with their trafficker. A trauma bond may help the victim feel balanced due to the the sense of predictability that the relationship provided. Within the relationship, there is familiarity and consistency, while leaving that relationship presents the risk of the unknown. The control in a trauma bond may help a person mentally make sense of the world, uh, whereas escaping the trauma bond and, you know, having to make independent decisions may feel very overwhelming. 
So by leaving a trauma bond, a survivor may uh, risk experiencing intense anger, sadness, numbness, negative expectations about the future, and internal disorder. Uh, so when providers deny access to services due to a victim's uh, interaction with the perpetrator, it may result in re-victimization through uh, engagement in high-risk survival activities. I think what you just mentioned there really shows the consequences of not understanding or accounting for trauma bonding and treatment plans. If they're staying in a shelter, they might be kicked out for returning to their trafficker. Right, so stages of relapse, uh, you know, when a victim might return to their trafficker, that needs to be accounted for in the treatment plan, especially knowing that it is a common occurrence, especially in trauma bond, uh, bonded relationships. And finally, uh, organizations, they need to be cautious uh, not to replicate trauma bonding within their own programs. Uh, so service provider um, assumes the simultaneously, you know, protective a coercive role that the trafficker previously played in a survivor's life. And of course, you know, more research needs to be done um, on the topic to better understand how trauma affects victims and how the cycle can be broken. There is definitely a big need for more research on this topic because it's just so interesting. Well, it's also heartbreaking when you remember that we're talking about real humans who experienced so much trauma and especially mental hardships in their life where they end up having brain development issues that lead to these addictions to abuse. If there's any psychologists looking for, I don't know, a PhD dissertation, I think you should definitely look into this and then let us know when you get it published. Yeah, here's an idea. There's so much that needs to be done on this topic um, and it's really, really breaking the surface. All right, everybody, it's now time for our myth. Georgia, what do you have for us? All right, switching things up today. I'm saying the myth, Isabel, is to respond. Today's myth is, I wish we had a drum roll sound. During a rescue mission, children are always happy to be helped. Now, I wish this were true, and it's really really, really upsetting that it's not. But in the cases where this isn't true, children may not have any trust in the police or the strangers coming to rescue them. Love 146 reported of a child who was told by rescuers, we have a safe place for you with help and services. And the child responded, last time someone said that it didn't turn out so well. And I know we touched on this point before, but often survivors don't recognize their situation as being trafficking or exploitation. And survivors can get anxiety from being rescued because they're being taken out of their situation that has become so normal, even though it's for their own safety. Another thing that I thought of, though, while you were saying that, I think it's a really interesting point. I had never actually thought about um, the idea that, you know, somebody might have been rescued before and it turns out that wasn't actually a safe place for them. Um, I think another thing, too, that can lead people to maybe not want to be rescued is, you know, traffickers will a lot of times foster distrust in law enforcement or people trying to rescue them. And they'll build this narrative that, you know, they're going to take you away from me and they're going to hurt you. And, you know, they're the bad guys. And so that can make it harder for law enforcement to do their job as well. And the second thing that I uh, thought about was how. This is kind of like after the fact, there's a lot of focus on uh, rescuing people and getting them out of their trafficking situation, which is great. And that's, you know, a lot of the dangerous uh, kind of heavy lifting work. But there's not quite as much focus on the aftercare and making sure that that person has a sustainable life to where they don't kind of get pushed back into trafficking ring. So like, for example, um, the impact of poverty. Somebody might get rescued up out of a trafficking situation, but they can't find a job. They're having a hard time holding a job um, because they're not receiving, you know, proper uh, mental health care, let's say. And so because of that, um, to provide for themselves, they end up right back in the trafficking, right? Yeah, those are some 
really good points because when you think of a child being rescued from a very traumatizing situation as is, you would think they're going to be happy, but it's definitely not always the case because they're so used to their situation. They're now terrified of any new person that is introduced. And then, like you said, the rescue is such an important part. You know, that's what gets in all the headlines on the news. X amount of children rescued from a sex trafficking ring. That's what's going to get the headline. The the little itty bitty bit at the end of the article that nobody reads is, did they seek any aftercare? Was there aftercare provided to them? And I think now that we are kind of trying to force conversations around this issue, you do see some organizations pairing with advocacy groups and NGOs and trying to push for that aftercare, but it's definitely something that should be focused on a little bit more. 100%. I mean, again, like, you know, we even touched on with this trauma bonding. A lot of this is, even though we've known about it for a while, the understanding of it is a lot newer and being able to diagnose it uh, is a little bit more recent. And so um, as, you know, we keep learning, we're able to then provide better services after the fact and make sure that um, these individuals are have the tools that they need, whether it's the mental health care, whether it's a, obtaining education um, to build a life. Right. And another thing that we do have to keep in mind is that every survivor is going to have a different story, a different experience, and therefore they're going to have different needs when they one day hopefully get rescued and make it back into a safer place for them. So ultimately, though, you know, going back to the myth, really the takeaway from the myth and the previous conversation is that just because, you know, somebody wasn't initially happy to be helped does not mean that they're not a victim. Georgia, thank you so much for delivering today's myth. Um, That's super important, um, a takeaway um, to help grow our understanding of what victimization uh, can look like uh, and just be more aware of human trafficking. Um, So thank you so much for that. Um, If you haven't, you know, be sure to follow Moms and Security Global Outreach on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Uh, DM us and just questions, comments, what you thought. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. Uh, But thank you all so much for staying tuned to the end of this episode. We'll see you next time. 